Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Westwood One presents The Polsters. The Polsters. And now, Margie and Kristen. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with PSB Research. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So I am here. I am literally on the floor, not just on the floor of the APOR conference, actually on the floor outside the cocktail party. And my first thought was I need to have Ariel come and talk to us because... We cite her liberally, but she's never been on the show. So here she is in the flesh. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to be here, sitting literally on the floor. Um, I've listened to the show a lot, and I'm looking forward to chatting about polling. So, okay, so tell us a little bit about why come to APOR. Is it really about the methodology? Are you learning about methodology? Is it about networking and meeting other folks in the industry? Or is it to kind of revel in this post-2016 environment where everyone is talking about polling coverage and what went wrong? I don't know if revel would have been the word that would first (laughs) spring to mind given the circumstances. Um, I think it's really all about swim in it. Swim. Yeah, we'll go with that. Um, Really, this is a very fascinating time to be in polling, to be thinking about polling, to be talking about polling. And because it's so much a part of our national dialogue and also because it's an industry that's going through so many changes right now. And I'm not just talking about the 2016 election, even though obviously that's very visible and something that everybody is thinking about. There's also a lot of changes that are going on in terms of methodology, in terms of new ways for reaching people, in terms of the way that people consume data and give up their own data in terms of the way that you reach people and the way that the traditional polls worked and work differently now. And so it's a really interesting time to be sort of thinking and talking about the way that we measure what people think about the world. So uh, aside from the panel that I was on, which was, of course, fabulous, you went to one that I wish I'd gone to about gender and how, and I saw you tweeted out, I was like, oh, I got to talk to Ariel about what happened. Was there a conclusion? Tell us a little bit about what the conversation was about how you figure out, how you tease out the role of voter gender, candidate gender, self-desire, you know, desirability, social desirability bias, all those things that people, that you make it so difficult to figure out what the role of gender is in 2016 polling. 
Yeah, and I mean, this is one of those things where there aren't the sort of easy answers that you might ideally want. You know, it's not one of those things where you can say, aha, 2% of the vote was due to this, you know. But I want that answer. I know. Wouldn't that be great? That would be fantastic. But, you know, and it's what would that even mean? You know, would women be more likely to vote for her if she were a man, if she were running against somebody else? What does that really mean? And I think even when people are casting their own votes, if you ask, well, what percentage of your vote is decided by the candidate's gender, nobody is going know the answer to that. Um, I think one question that I saw that was very interesting to me and I think sheds light on how difficult it is to measure things like this was the question asking people about whether they thought it was a good thing to have a female nominee regardless of who that nominee was. So it wasn't supposed to be about Hillary Clinton. And, you know, they found the results. Democrats were much more excited about that. So you could say, well, maybe Democrats are just happier to have a female candidate. We like diversity. Yeah. Anyhow, so they went back and asked this again after the election. And suddenly everybody, but especially Republicans, are much happier about the idea of having a female nominee, which tells you that when people were answering it the first time around, they were not answering it as a generic female nominee who could be from either party. They were answering it as though it were Hillary Clinton. It's impossible. There's no trick you can pull on a respondent to ask about how would you feel about a woman running for president in 2016 and have them not be thinking about Hillary Clinton? There's just nothing you can do about that. And and the fact that it changes that much is like, it just makes me sad. Like it's sort of like, Oh, that's great. As, as opposed to having a dialogue where like, this is really great. But in this case, I I'm interested in something else that people are going to that very quick partisan shot maybe even overriding the social desirability bias that makes them want to say it's good to have a woman nominee. Yeah, and I mean, you know, even when I was doing polling back during the election, I noticed that when I did a survey about the Democratic primary and I asked about female nominees and I gave people an answer that was something like, I support Bernie Sanders, but I'm still happy that there's a female nominee. Support suddenly rose because people were able to say what they wanted to say. You know, it really is one of those things where it's so slippery to measure and I don't think it's that it's a concrete truth that's slippery to measure. I think it's something that's a uniquely slippery concept, and that's why it's so difficult. Uh, I cite constantly, more perhaps than I cite you and your funny tweets, I cite this poll from, I think, Washington Post ABC that from 2007 that showed, would you prefer, you know, how would you feel about voting for a woman, a Mormon, someone who's black, a smoker, someone who's divorced, with no names attached, but everybody who was in the field, but without their names. And the, the type of person that people said, no, mo- they were most likely to say, I would not vote for that person, is a smoker. It's just fascinating because, you know, on one hand you say, well, smoking is a quality that a lot of people will go, oh, yeah, that's bad. You know, there's no social stigma against saying that smoking is not a good thing. On the other hand, I am trying to think of the person who goes to the ballot box and goes, gee, candidate Jones, he's from my party. He agrees with all my positions. I think he's a strong, decisive leader. But gosh, he smokes. I know, right? Um, it's just the the pressure to say that smoking is bad is so strong, and the pressure to say you don't care about any of those other things is also so strong that 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 is where that ended up. And that's just a sign of you know you can't ask anyone about their bias. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I was just gonna say, and I, I know somebody looked at. Um, views on candidates' age. And as it so happens, in 2008, Republicans were suddenly much happier about the idea of an older candidate for reasons that I can't possibly begin to fathom. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, 
party is a bigger driver than all these things. So tell us a little bit about what you're learning here and how it might influence how you cover polls or think about polls or what kind of polls people want to read about at Huffington Post this cycle. I think what's really interesting to me is just to sort of get on at the ground floor about what the industry itself is concerned about and try to find sort of the seed of that that I can relate to people who are interested in polling in a non-professional capacity. You know, I think what people want to know is on a sort of broader scale is what polls can we trust and what can they tell us about the world? And I think those are questions the industry itself is still sort of working through. Um, As a reporter, I like to be able to sort of find out what people are thinking about their own research, what areas they think are important and where they think things are going in the future. And I'm hoping to, you know, I don't know if anybody has a clear answer to any of those questions, but I'm looking forward to hearing from people about that. Do you think that you're getting the sense, because there's so much talk here about different kinds of methodology and online and big data and mobile and this and that, I mean, things that the average lay polling enthusiast that may follow your coverage of having to post or read, you know, the polling coverage, the political polling coverage may not necessarily know about. Is it, do you think a next step would be covering some of these changes in the industry or covering, having different kinds of disclosure or rules about what kinds of other methodologies you're going to be willing to cover? To me, that's a very sort of unsolved problem in how to tell the lay consumer. And lay sounds slightly pretentious. I'm, to many extents, a lay consumer myself, which is one of the reasons I can probably relate. You know, what people want to know is how can they trust this poll and when you don't sort of start from a background of having spent hours listening to the details and methodology, most people do not know or care about the difference between a probability and a non-probability sample. We're going to hear those terms a lot here at this conference. When they're used in polling stories, they get relegated to the very, very bottom of a story. What I try to do when I'm writing things is to say, here's all the data that we have out there. When I'm writing about my own data, I try to say, here's what else we have, too. I think that's a healthy perspective. And if there's a huge difference, I want to say, okay, there's a huge difference between the polling on this, and here's what we think might be the cause of some of the variants. And I think when there's so much data out there, the best thing that I can do um, to share that with people is just to sort of try to sum it up and to highlight the areas where we're not really sure or where people disagree. One of the things that you guys do that I don't see in a lot of other places is you do a table of different types of question wording when, you know, there's something going on in Syria or there's something going on with the travel ban and there are eight different outlets testing it in a variety of different ways and you look and you create a table where you can really quickly compare the question wording for all these outlets and how that may or may not be driving the debate. And it's so, it's so important because when you talk about polling, there's so much discussion of math and methodology and statistics and less of a discussion about writing and language. And so, but question wordings for things that people don't think about every day is so crucial. So can you talk a little bit about, about that? I mean, that's something that, is that coming up at all in this conference? Tell us about how you look at that as a reporter where you're trafficking in language, maybe perhaps more than math. And yeah, and I mean, my background is entirely as a journalist. That's how I came up. And in some ways, it's a counterintuitive background. But on the other hand, both being a journalist and being a pollster is about asking people clear questions and making sure that you're um, asking them in a way that you're getting answers that are useful and that reflect their true feelings. And in terms of the variance there, you know, one thing is, as a reporter, if you 
had two sources saying two different things, you wouldn't not quote one of those people. And I think it's sort of incumbent as a pollster, if you see the way you ask something and the way that somebody else asked is causing very different results, I think it's good to acknowledge that. It's very rare that you have the one true platonic poll question. I mean, there there is question wording that is bad. And I think we've if you've uh, paid attention, you've seen this, where there's a very obviously leading question, where it's just hopelessly confusing and there is a bunch of muddled clauses. But, you know, things like, do you um, ascribe a certain bill to its party or not? How much background information do you give? There's no simple answer to a lot of things like that. And I think our coverage is richer if we can acknowledge that. Um, I'll give an example to go into too much detail here. Recently, after the firing of Jim Comey, about half the polls that were conducted gave people an option to say, I don't know. The rest of the half, you know, you might have been able to say that or volunteer that, but they didn't give that as like an explicit option. And there was this clear split between those groups. If you gave people the option to say, "Mm, I've sort of been following that, it's kind of confusing, about a third of the public took it. And the rest of them didn't have that. And you could see that split. And I think that's something we need to talk about. Wait, you mean not everybody is following Twitter all day and watching live streams of Comey's testimony? Yeah, and I mean, I think that's one of the things to keep in mind when we're looking at survey coverage is a lot of people may not have been really thinking seriously about these issues until they were asked about it on a survey. And I think it's sort of, you want to think how much do people care about these issues? There are some things that like, you know, people feel very strongly about their own health care, for instance. They have opinions about it. You're not sort of creating those opinions for them. But there are things that are sort of more process stories. And I hate that term because it makes it sound like it's not important somehow. But stories that are fundamentally about democratic norms and the way things work in Washington. I think often if people aren't the kind of people who are doing that professionally and spending eight hours a day looking at that, those are sort of a little slower to build up in their minds, not because they're ignorant or because they're less, you know... They have other jobs. Yeah, they have other things going on in their lives. And a lot of times these things are very complicated as somebody who spends way too much time thinking about them. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And you learn something from the differences in question wording. It doesn't mean that one question wording was bad or good or bad, but it, it it tells you a little bit of information. Now, if you were doing qualitative, you'd see that also, but we don't have a lot of public qualitative. We have to look at different versions of quantitative. And I think one of the things is that the variance tells you something about how robust public opinion is. You know, if it's something where people are following partisan cues, where they don't have a huge um, reservoir of preset opinions about it, you will see more variance. If it's something where you're seeing a bunch of different questions asked and everybody's getting the same results, that tells you something too. All right, so I want to move to a serious conversation, and that's Twitter. You're very funny on Twitter. Can you tell us, like, do you come up with these puns? Tell us about your pun habit on Twitter, because really, you are one of our favorite people to quote on Twitter. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Uh, Basically, this is just the way my mind works. And if I say it on Twitter, I'm less likely to say it in the newsroom. If I'm less likely to say it in the newsroom, it's less likely that my colleagues are going to throw me out of a window. So I feel like it's a good um, situation for all concerned. So, like, what was, like, what was one of your favorite Twitter puns in the? It can be any time. It doesn't. We're not gonna. We don't care when it was. I mean, I think the best thing that I've personally come up with, which seems ridiculous saying, but um, during the Democratic convention, after hearing "fight song." 
about one too many times. I reimagined it as something that Dwight Eisenhower might sing to Richard Nixon. I remember this. Um, this is my Dwight song, my I Like Ike song. I basically, I personally found this extremely amusing and couldn't stop thinking it, and I wanted everybody else to share in my misery. Do you know, when I... And I don't hear that song out in the wild very often, but I, I, and I, maybe you would like knowing that this is true. But when I've heard that, I think of that tweet that you said. Basically, maybe the biggest accomplishment of my professional life is that the person who sang that song liked the tweet. <laughs> You know, you can't really get much better than that. No, no, that's really good. Well, where can people follow you? People can subscribe to the newsletter. There's a Huffington Post coverage. There's, of course, your very hilarious Twitter feed. Please break it all down for everybody. Okay, so you can follow our coverage at HuffPost Pollster. Um, If you go to the HuffPost homepage and you click on the pollster section, you will get a running list of our charts or aggregation and the stories and newsletters that we're working on. You can follow me on Twitter at at A. Edwards Levy. And you can sign up for my newsletter at uh, tinyletter.com slash A. Edwards Levy, and I will send you lots of polls. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to do this. Thank you for having me on. A Westwood One podcast production.